Unfortunately, after one active shooter exercise, I overheard the firefighters talking to their battalion chief saying, hey chief, that was all fun and all that, but you don't expect us to do this in real life, do you? Enchanted Sky Media. Media. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. You know, active shooter situations seem to be happening more and more frequently. For fire departments, that means a need to develop a good working relationship with police and maybe a closer one with other EMS agencies. That could be as simple as a common set of definitions for words used on the scene. You know, plain talk. Today's guest, Jim Morrissey, is here to explain. Jim is a former tactical paramedic for the San Francisco FBI SWAT team. He's the founder of the Tactical Medical Association of California. He's the Terrorism Preparedness Coordinator for Alameda County EMS, and he's a Medical Intelligence Officer for the Northern California Regional Intelligence Center. Jim is lectured in over 25 countries on emergency medicine, wilderness rescue, and tactical medical operations, and he's co-written a couple of books. More on that a little later. Jim Morrissey joins me now to talk about interagency cooperation and exactly what that means in the real world. Welcome to Code 3, Jim. Well, thank you very much for having me, Scott. How do agencies currently interact with these kinds of scenes? Optimistically, there is this encouraging trend around the country for all first responder public safety disciplines, EMS, fire, and law enforcement, to work together. There are, there are federal agencies, of course, FEMA, Department of Homeland Security, and whatnot, um, as well as the International Association of Fire Chiefs and the fire unions have all written and published white papers, if you will, on supporting the notion of better integration of the response disciplines, a more aggressive posture for, uh, for EMS and fire, you know, and changing the paradigm, much like Columbine changed the paradigm for law enforcement, you know, not waiting for SWAT, getting in there, first officer on scene, enter into a, a you know, an active shooter situation to mitigate the threat. It's taken fire and EMS uh, uh, quite a while, um, a number of years to realize their paradigm has to shift as well. And, you know, actually one of the articles I wrote was um, called Redefining Clear. You know, historically, fire and EMS were waiting for the absolute all clear, which really meant every barrel, basement, cabinet, bathroom, attic, closet, desk was cleared by law enforcement, taking minutes, if not hours, before they would enter into a scene. Now the shift is law enforcement eliminates the threat. You know, and in this area, if you will, let's say the cafeteria, no bad guys, no bombs. It's clear enough. We don't know where the bad guy is, but he's not here. 
or maybe he's dead, which happens quite often, and we need to get these emergency response disciplines in there to actively save lives. We have this mantra that we use now, which I think is simple and appropriate. You know, the first priority is stop the killing, and then the second priority is stop the dying. And that's everybody's responsibility, not just EMS and fire, but you know, law enforcement has shifted gears in initiating casualty care on scene. So anyway, the, the trend is encouraging. Lots of disciplines and jurisdictions across the country have embraced this new paradigm and are training and shifting their priorities and policies. So, it, you know, not everybody's on board yet, but it, it's just a matter of time. On the whole, how would you assess how fire and EMS are working with law enforcement in these situations? Well, I think, um, as I said, there are, there are encouraging developments. I mean, just right now, this summer alone, I'm involved with four or five different jurisdictions in the Bay Area that are all embarking on creating active shooter exercises, embracing the concept that it's multidiscipline coordination in the planning phase. And so um, I would say uh, we're doing well, we need to do better. Um, and um, the training, the one of, for example, one of the ways we're doing uh, an exercise is for law enforcement to do some training on their own in the morning, basically eliminate the threat, room clears, uh, use of force policy, all that while at the same time, fire and EMS are getting training on just-in-time training, uh, medical care, point of wounding care, triage priorities, you know, embracing tourniquet application, chest seals, wound packing, that sort of thing. And then later in the morning, they actually get together and do some walkthroughs on rescue task force maneuvers, discuss terminology, as you mentioned earlier, about the difference between cover and concealment and emergency evacuation, rally point casualty collection points, and then do some slow walkthroughs, you know, and, and understand the difference between, you know, a sort of a diamond formation escort and then shifting gears if an area, uh, let's say the library is where all the casualties are, if law enforcement can lock that area down, we now have a beachhead. And if they can staff a safe corridor out to the casualty collection point, then you really don't need that escort anymore and you can sort of, you know, operate freely inside that secured zone. So those are great activities to do as a walkthrough. And then in the afternoon, you know, shift gears and do some exercises. I'm publishing a series of articles in ems1.com and police1.com on how do you actually plan and, and execute an active shooter type training. And by the way, it doesn't have to be just active shooter. It's the same thing for a bombing, an IED, uh, even a, a naturally occurring disasters. These these multidiscipline exercises are happening more and more frequently, which which is critical to the success that we need to, to effectively save some lives out there. What reaction or what general mindset do you see from fire and EMS as concerns this whole thing? I mean, we have some agencies now that have gone to body armor and they're protecting themselves. But from your point of view, what do you see in terms of attitudinal changes? Uh, that's a great question, and it, it really varies. I mean, I unfortunately, after one active shooter exercise uh, in a relatively local jurisdiction, I overheard the firefighters talking to their battalion chief saying, hey, chief, that was all fun and all that, but you don't expect us to do this in real life, do you? 
And I was just floored that, you know, um, their response was very um, uh, sort of a, a very historical perspective of we're not going in there. You know, we're not going into a war zone. Uh, we don't you know, these guys didn't have ballistic protection. And, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you, you'll go into an upside down car in the middle of a highway in a rainstorm, um, you know, to extricate people. But, you know, statistically, these active shooter situations are done in five minutes. There's one shooter, you know, um, uh, statistically speaking, you know, the FBI did a extensive study looking at 160 active shooter incidents and all but two of them were perpetrated by a single person. So one person over in five minutes, uh, either they, they flee, they kill themselves or they um, are engaged with law enforcement. So we have to use data and statistics to, you know, really um, shape our policies and procedures and, you know, with a law enforcement escort and protection, you know, I would argue you're far more safer responding to an active shooter incident than any domestic violence scene you call you run into. So um, that scenario I gave is the exception. By and large, you know, the firefighter community, EMS community are embracing this change. You know, they want policies, they want procedures, they want to make sure that that there's training, there's properly equipment, um, there's ballistic protection um, and 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 uh, training and exercise opportunities to then create. Um, an environment to create, um, you know, solid policies and procedures. So it does vary, but I would say on the whole um, uh, that that the response community has embraced this, this new uh, approach to responding to these kinds of incidents. I'll be back with more right after this. Every day, you put your life on the line to protect our families, friends, communities, cities, and our nation. Federal Resources knows the dangers you encounter daily. Whether it's fire, hazmat, or the more recent opioid threats, we're here to support you, protect you, and help train you for your next mission. You're looking out for everyone else. Let us look out for you. Federalresources.com. It sounds as though the major challenges then would consist of attitude adjustment and getting everybody on board. Is that fair? It is fair. And I think, you know, I, I one of the articles I wrote uh, in EMS1 was on active shooter training mistakes. So just because you participate in an active shooter event. I'm, I'm recalling um, a training oh, a number of years ago where the um, – Law enforcement had asked a, a number of engine companies to participate in this exercise, which they did. But the engine companies were basically standing around for about two hours before they got engaged. And then the engagement was basically, um, you know, going into some inflatable mannequins with triage tags atta attached to them. You know, so the training value was not great. And it was it was really, in their mind, kind of, quote, a waste of time which I can understand. And so that's why the the exercise, whoever hosts it, you need to have those disciplines uh, participate in the planning so that there's something for everybody. There's very little downtime um, and it needs to be, you know, really uh, coordinated and embraced. Uh, and, and sort of the exercise has to be owned by representatives from law enforcement, from fire, from EMS, and certainly the whatever 
uh, facility you're using. If you're using a school, you need the school resource officer. If you're using, you know, the transit agency, you need them on board. If you, you know, certainly the airport, whatever it happens to be, a hospital, um, you need to have those um, those hosting agencies involved as well. And then another important thing is for the um, law enforcement, of course, it's eliminate the threat and then protect EMS. For EMS and fire, what they really need to have to 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 make it palatable and and uh, captivating is good role players. You know, some degree of moulage, some degree of accurate portrayal of the injury patterns that they might see. They need to have training equipment that they can actually bust open. They can put on a tourniquet. They can open a chest seal and apply it to an open chest injury. They can pack a wound. They extricate to a CCP. Then I think they feel like, oh, that was worth it. So as the training and the uh, planning uh, will will drive the attitude towards participating in these events and then embracing it as a real-life response. Now, that's training. How much real-life experience have we had with seeing fire and EMS going into a hot zone or a warm zone? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the terminology is important. In a hot zone, you know, we really don't want fire and EMS um, in that area. Um, that's really reserved for a tactical medic, a, a medic that is either law enforcement or attached to a law enforcement team that has been significantly trained in dealing with those kinds of um, situation and operate as basically uh, an operator on, on a tactical team. Sure. That, that individual would be armed, I would assume. Um, no, not necessarily. If they are uh, with our FBI for, you know, our medics there, civilian medics are, are not armed. We do wear ballistic protection, um, but we're escorted um, by um, uh, SWAT operators or non-SWAT FBI agents that are assigned to us to look out for us, to protect us, and to escort us. Um, but even in that situation, we are not going to go into a zone where, the, where quote-unquote, the bullets are flying. Um, and so... Uh, there are some tactical medics who are law enforcement, who are armed, and who very well, well may be in the high threat zone and may be actively engaged in, in a gunfight, per se. But those, but that's 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 really limited to law enforcement tactical operators who are also acting in a role as a medic. All right, then, in terms of fire and EMS that has gone into a scene. Have you been involved with a situation where that's happened, or have you seen an after-action report or a debriefing on something like that, and how did it go? Yes, and I certainly um, am also a, an expert witness that um, you know reviews these these cases and and procedures, and we've certainly had um, our our share of these around the Bay Area. Um, you know, a, a relatively recent one. Um, where some uh, personnel that I was uh, familiar with, um, the Oiko shooting of a um, college and a disgruntled uh, student um, basically executed a number of, of fellow students um, and shot, injured a number and then fled the scene. Um, so Oakland police um, locked the scene down. They searched for the perpetrator. The perpetrator got in a car and left. Um, so they didn't know where the bad guy or the shooter was, but they did know that he wasn't where the injured people were. So they created what we call a beachhead. Um, basically, they protected that area, and then they created a safe corridor um, a, a, through the actual corridors out to where EMS and fire were, and then they escorted um, in uh, the, the, the medics to then triage and try to salvage 
um, the injuries or the injured people as best as possible and then extricate them out and transport them to a trauma center. So, um, you know, we certainly have seen that in real life. Um, and, uh, and, I've, and I think the, the shift has been a positive one in that law enforcement realizes that their job is just not only to eliminate the threat, but it's to arrange, make arrangements for either the casualties out or medics in. And in addition to that, we're seeing a, a tremendous trend of law enforcement, you know, beginning that initial um, casualty care on scene. And, you know, many officers are carrying, uh, you know, uh, some degree of life-saving equipment on there for self-care, buddy care. And they are focusing using that equipment on the injured casualties as a result of some horrific event. Now, that brings up an interesting point. Are law enforcement, or I should say, how are law enforcement officers responding to this idea that they have to protect the medics or that they may have to care for victims themselves? How is that going over? I, I think the the understanding is, is pretty universal um, across the country, uh, but not 100%. And there are still law enforcement officers that are uh, extremely reticent to initiate any casualty care. You know, there are a few that feel like their job is security only. But as as one well-respected ex-military, uh, uh, Thomas DiTomaso, who was actually in Black Hawk Down, who does a lot of training, he said it makes no sense at all to have eight guns pointing down a corridor when you have bleeding kids five feet away from you. You know, put one gun down the corridor, everybody else start caring for these kids. And so I think... Cops are realizing that it's not just security, but they have uh, basically an obligation to render aid. And, and in California, anyway, uh, every law enforcement officer goes through a 21-hour medical training as part of their academy. And those that are out now are still going through that training, which includes um, active shooter um, response and uh, tactical casualty care. So... Um, so I think, you know, uh, at least the officers I've dealt with, which has been hundreds, if not thousands, um, I was in Algeria actually recently training their national counterterrorism team, um, doing the same kind of thing. They're, they're training uh, to save their lives, their partners' lives, and also civilians, and even the perpetrator themselves. We have one um, well-known local law enforcement officer who's put on about eight tourniquets in the last year, and they've all been on perpetrators or um, gun victims who have you know been in gunfights with other other um, suspects. Um, and so um, that part, um, I, I think, is again a, a great trend. The other part of the responsibility to uh, protect the medics, um, law enforcement officers responding to a scene, their first mission is the contact team, get in there, find the shooter, eliminate the shooter, uh, um, sequester or isolate, um, you know, and distract the shooter. So they're not going to hang around with a, a rescue task force if they're still an active threat. They're going to go in and, and have multiple contact teams. But once that threat is mitigated, you know, and then they understand if we're really there to save lives, to do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people, then they can dispatch a, a few resources to act as a protective element to the rescue task force, which is um, in, in this area, it's, it, it is both um, uh, fire-based um, EMS and also private-based EMS um, will work together um, to create a rescue task force. 
All right, we'll leave it there. Jim Morrissey, thanks for talking with us today on Code 3. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And we put more information on interagency cooperation and Jim's two books on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash cooperation. Check it out. Here comes your trivia question. When did the first fire apparatus arrive in America? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. Here is your trivia answer. In the 1700s, the first hand pumpers arrived in America from England. They had long parallel handles that required a bunch of volunteers to pump up and down rapidly to move water from the machine's tub into the hoses. But they were still far better than the bucket brigades. American manufacturers copied these designs, they refined them, and used them for almost a hundred years. So there you go. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I'm Scott R. and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.